You know your body and you know what's going on better than anybody else. So when you go into that physician, if he does not listen to you, if he cannot turn away from the computer and sit and have a real conversation with you, you have a wrong doctor. I like a doctor who is human and knows that I may have the title of physician. I may have gone to school longer than the person sitting in front of me. But basically, you know, two days out, this could be me because I too am human. Welcome to another episode of Advocates in Action, a podcast created by the National Patient Advocate Foundation, a nonprofit that develops initiatives promoting equitable access to affordable quality health care through policy action and partnerships. I'm your host, Ashley Freeman. Today, I'm honored to speak with Beverly Rogers, who is the founder of From Mama's House, an organization that helps women walk with purpose and passion while practicing self-care through personal development coaching and workshops. Now, in her retirement, she celebrates Me Mondays and Free Fridays, where she can do whatever brings her joy and sit in the quiet and enjoy listening to music or the birds singing. Thank you so much for joining me today, Beverly. I know you have been a longtime healthcare advocate. So share with me, what was your initial introduction to healthcare? I have been in healthcare, I think, from the time I was a little girl in Kansas City and I had a dermatology problem. And because this was during the Jim Crow era, I had to go to a white dermatologist through the back door after hours. And even though I knew it was strange, I'm sure somewhere in the back of my mind, I thought, you know, I need help. Why are we going through the back door? But as I grew older and being an African-American with all kinds of issues, I realized that for me to be healthy, I needed to eat well, I needed to exercise, and I used to love to ice skate, and I used to love gymnastics. And my mother was one of those who ate salads every day, and so she ate healthy. We didn't eat just, you know, the traditional fried foods, but my mother was a an everyday salad-eating woman, so we got lots oh, wow. of salad, and I crave those today. So. I would say that it started way back in those days. That is awesome. So she taught you when you were young to to have those good, healthy habits and everything like that. How was healthcare back in those days? You know, you mentioned having to go through the back door. So do you feel like that was your first introduction to realizing health disparities? It may have been. But I don't think it really hit me until my 10-year-old son was diagnosed with diabetes. And even though I had health challenges, I'm a 29-year breast cancer survivor. And so navigating the healthcare system and speaking up for myself and, and advocating for myself was key to my becoming well and making sure that my son got the best care he could get when he was 10 years old was number one. And so, you know, having been a part of that as well as working at Cook County Hospital in Chicago. So I saw both sides of it. I knew what to ask because I had doctor friends and doctor employers 
who would, you know, acquaintances, and I would say, what should I know? What should I ask? So I would say that was a lot of the awakening from my early days. And what was the role that you played in working at Cook County Hospital? I was an administrative assistant to, believe it or not, an endocrinologist uh, who, who also did research. I was with him for about 12 years. And so oh. that, you know, I left there and went to the American Hospital Association. And from there, I went to Wyoming National Breast Cancer Organization. So I have been on the administrative side and, and you know, actually network with healthcare professionals for many, many years. But And that, I would say, Ashley, I would say that has been key to my being an advocate because I know what they go through, but I also know that having taken care of my husband through Alzheimer's, having taken care of my mother through hospice, and now being in Medicare with a hip replacement and a do-over that was not done well, I know what needs to be changed in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And no one has ever listened. So I'm hoping someone will be listening, you know, as I sit on all these panels, but it is one of those things that I am just passionate about helping us navigate the system. And the system is not really friendly to a lot of us who ask those questions or ask the questions, but that's where I'm going to stand until the day I leave out of here. You have experienced it from all angles, you, <laughs> you know, being in administration and working in the in a hospital. And like you said, being a caregiver, but being a patient yourself and breast cancer survivor. Those are so many different angles to see the system in a larger view. So for you, what do you feel like are some of the things that need to be fixed? The one thing that needs to be fixed is communication. And it's not just you tell me and I tell you. There is a, a place where we are not listening to each other. Healthcare providers assume that they know what is best for you, but they only see you when you're there for a diagnosis. They don't know every day. And what I tell those who are in the trenches with me is that you know your body and you know what's going on better than anybody else. So when you go into that physician, if he does not listen to you, if he cannot turn away from the computer and sit and have a real conversation with you, you have a wrong doctor. And because your insurance is paying or someone is paying, you have the right to move on. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that communication means listening and hearing and then doing something about it. And it happens from both sides, from the healthcare professional side, as well as from the patient side. Now that I've reached that 80th birthday, I realized that somehow or another, I managed not only by the grace of God, but also because I do take care of myself. I know what's good for me. 
that is what this whole season is about. Not just communicating, but doing something about it. And I love that because that focuses on the solutions and what we can do moving forward. Have there been times in your life and in your journey of being a patient and of being a caregiver where your healthcare providers didn't communicate or didn't hear you and weren't taking into consideration the fact that, like you said, you know your body best? Yes, that did happen a couple times. And I always do my due diligence when I'm looking for doctors, especially if it's something that's serious. And I have several chronic diseases that need to be taken care of. And when I was looking for someone for my hip replacement diagnosis, I visited three or four doctors. And there was one that was referred to me, but he was totally non-communicative. And I never went back. And not only did I not go back, but I made sure that everybody I knew and talked to and said, this is not a doctor that you want to go to because he is not one who believes that you have the right to say what you want to say. It's interesting that healthcare professionals and nursing homes have no idea that even though they are doing things, they assume that we don't know We as patients, we as advocates talk to each other. And so there have been healthcare professionals, there have been nursing homes that have been on a list. I call it the good, bad, the ugly, and the ugliest. And so Mm -hmm. we have a list of those who are the ugliest. And with that being said, I would assume being the ugliest includes providers who make assumptions about what certain patients can understand and and probably treat them differently as a result. So have you found that either in your own experiences or in the experiences of friends and colleagues that you've spoken to? Oh, so many times. And, you know, we don't have enough time to even talk about the people that I've tried to convince to move from one healthcare system to another. And a lot of them didn't move because it was a lot of work. They were in pain and their insurance company caused them a lot of trouble getting them to move from one place to the other. A lot of people do not advocate for themselves. They just don't. And so, yes, I have seen it. You know me, Ashley, so I haven't had too much of it because I do speak (laughs) up and I do write letters. As some of my friends say, you are so articulate. Well, yes, I am articulate. I not only speak when I think you're wrong, but I will also write it out and everybody will know it. And I make lots of copies. So, yes, I have experienced it, but they have also seen what Beverly is like when she is not pleased with your service. What do you feel like is the source of that? Do you feel like doctors make an assumption or put people in a category and that determines the treatment that they give? I wish it was that easy. You know, that would be an easy answer. But I think also that doctors are under a pressure for billing. And if they're under a pressure for time and billing, they don't have time to really go into what the patient really wants to say. If you have someone who is not used to speaking up or who is not clear or does not know the questions to ask, and you have a doctor who is on a time clock 
and he does not have time to have a real conversation with you, that may look like a disparity. It may look like inequity, but I'm not sure it's because the doctor doesn't want to. It may be because the doctor is in a place where if he doesn't, that does something to whatever his billing service is or whatever. But there are a lot of things in place in healthcare that look like inequity, but it is inequity based on a larger picture. It is inequity based on how they're being paid. It is inequity based on the insurance policy that we have. It is inequity in access and referrals and protocols and policies. So it's not just racism. There are all kinds of other things that are in play that that is that are so complex you don't know where to start with it. I love that response because it's so true, right? You're like, it would be easy <laughs> to say that this is the one issue, but there's so many moving parts which makes it harder to find solutions because it's not just a one band-aid fixes all of the issues. I love that you highlighted the complexity of it and the fact that we can't really point at one thing and say, that's the root of it. And, and let's just go fix that. Absolutely. It's, and it's not just hospitals. It's also nursing homes, rehab centers, the professional doctor's offices. There are so many pieces in so many places and administrative sections that you don't know where to actually start. We all have a bias of something, but when you're short-tempered, when you're not feeling good, when you have people who aren't helping you, when you are short-staffed, when you've been sick for three days and you can't find anyone to help you and you have your bias, I don't know how you say this is what we need to do to fix it. And unfortunately, fixing healthcare at this point is like turning around a cruise ship in the Chicago River. <laughs> <laughs> that is a visual for sure. However, you do feel like there are ways to have our own little impact. And I think that's the great thing that I admire about your work is that even though, like you said, switching this whole system and fixing it is looking quite impossible, but we can all do our own part of it in whatever community that we're impacting. And so for you as an advocate, how do you do that? How do you help and teach other people how to advocate for themselves? Because like you said, you have no problem telling it like it is, talking to your doctors, firing healthcare providers, you will do it all. But what about people who don't feel as empowered? What is your advice for them? And those are the ones where it breaks my heart to think about they should have changed healthcare systems. They weren't getting the care that they needed. And they did not change until it was too late. And within months, they were gone when there was an opportunity for them to change. I talk to them as much as I can, you know, and I give examples. And most of the times, my way of doing it is simply asking the question. And I've always been called the question coach. So I always ask, what is important to you? And why is it important? What is it you want to see? What do you value? 
And of course, my big question is, what are you pretending not to know? What are you pretending not to know about the situation? What are you pretending not to know about your health? What are you pretending not to know about moving forward? You know, is there a fear? Is there a regret? So my way of doing it is normally asking the question and they will have to answer it and and act upon whatever that answer is. And that is advocate training. That is being an advocate, but knowing what you are willing to do to manage your own quality of life when you go in to see someone and know basically this is what I want it to look like when I leave your office. And I want you to help me get there. Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying walking into the office with an agenda. Everyone else comes in with an agenda. I need to come in with my desires and my agenda and my goals as well. And I do. I always have a list. When I walk in the office, I said, I have a list of questions. My care doctor right now, she knows that, and I'll say, I've got a list. She said, would you hold on? Let me put your name in the computer. And she will turn around and look at me because she knows we've got a conversation going. And one thing I like about her also is she does not look at her watch while we're talking. But most doctors know that I am going to come in with questions. And if you tell me something, I am going to ask you questions about what you just told me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for people out there listening to not feel fear to ask those questions, if you don't know something, ask, you know, don't feel ashamed. Finding out more information is more beneficial. What are some other characteristics that you notice of good doctors? I know you said looking you in the eye, turning around their body language, not looking at their watch and really feeling like you're listened to. You know what I have really been surprised at and and pleasantly surprised my doctors or someone from the doctor's office will call after a procedure or after we've had a discussion about something and ask how I'm doing and if I have questions and I do appreciate that and I think that's new I had not seen it before but I don't know if it's new because I'm old or if I'm new because it's COVID, but, (laughs) but it's nice to have some, have a doctor call and say, we just wanted to check and make sure everything is okay. I had cataract surgery and, you know, they called and said, how are you doing? Or do you have any questions? That means a lot because it's 24, 48 hours later and you may have questions or something has happened in between time. Mm-hmm. The key in following up. So it really feels like they care about you even after you've left the office. Right. And that's the key. Mm-hmm. Right. I like a doctor who is human and knows that I may have the title of physician. I may have gone to school longer than the person sitting in front of me. But basically, you know, two days out, this could be me because I too am human. Yeah. I know that you also mentioned being a caregiver for your son, for your husband, for your mom. And with that, how did being a caregiver 
change the way that you communicate it with healthcare providers. Because now you're not just advocating for yourself, but now you're advocating for a loved one. So how do you loop them into the process as well? My mother was, even though she was 85, she had made her own decisions. She had made out a power of attorney. Uh, She had her last will and testament. She had her DNR. And so when she got sick, I would ask her what she wanted. And she made a decision that she wanted to go in hospice. It was it was not mine. Of course, my son at 10, you know, we had to take him all through teenage years. I am grateful, however, that he is now in his 50s and he has all of his limbs and eyesight. So I must have done something right to to keep him (laughs) living a, a lifestyle that kept him fairly healthy. The Alzheimer's was the tough one. He was diagnosed in 2001 and he passed in 2013. And between the falls in the nursing home, the doctors and the neurologists, and that was managing a team of people, even the home care agencies, which is a whole nother story when we talk about healthcare. Um, getting the help that I needed and knowing that I was not qualified for Medicaid, but I could not afford all of the expensive things and drugs that he needed, the care that he needed. That was one time I would say that if it had not been the Lord on my side, I would not be here talking to you, Ashley, because there were nights I put my head on the Bible and said, whatever it is I need to know, you need to put it in there because I ain't got it tonight. Those were tough years. And I would not have been able to do it without family and friends, number one, and without the experience that I had in healthcare, knowing that if they could not give me the help that I needed, so that he had the quality of life that I thought he need, then I will tell you, I went through at least four home care agencies. I know I went through three hospice agencies. They could either help me or they couldn't. I wrote letters to three hospitals where I would walk in and one of them had him strapped in the bed and had not told me they were gonna strap him. Those were tough years and healthcare at that time was not really helping me because no one knows what to do. You know, Mm -hmm. there's no cure for Alzheimer's and people don't know how to help you when you have a loved one who has Alzheimer's. Well, first of all, I commend you for that because that is a, a long time of caregiving, but that was in your vows. You said in sickness and in health, and you truly lived that out. So I, I really admire you for that. For you, when it comes to communicating and staying on top of your medical records and all of your appointments and everything like that, what is a helpful tool you know that you have used with your providers? Because I know technology and in the healthcare field is really big right now as well. Technology is really big for those of us who know how to work technology. There are still seniors who have flip phones 
and you cannot do telehealth on a flip phone. <laughs> and that's where you start looking at the disparity and in, in inequities. There are some people who don't know how to get online anything uh, during the the pandemic, there were some people who did not know how to order their groceries. And so there were those of us that were taking them to the grocery store or ordering groceries for them, you know, or family members bringing groceries in. So technology is wonderful, except that there are some that have gotten left behind and will be left behind. Wi-Fi is expensive, you know, phones and, and the data you know, text data is expensive. How do we on a fixed income actually say that we're going to talk to a doctor online? I talk to my physician through the portals. There are people who have never described their health in writing. So if you're saying, tell me what you want or what you think or how you feel or explaining in a portal and it has to be written, it may never get done because it's very daunting. I have always been writing. I, you know, that was part of my career, but there are people who don't write. And then there are those of us, and I must admit most time I am (laughs) in telehealth. I am used to someone listening to my heart, making sure there's no whoosh in my neck saying that there's blockage. I am used to having someone examine and listen to me. You cannot do that on telehealth. And there are many of us seniors who figure that if I have to take my own blood pressure on a regular basis, then why am I paying you? That is definitely a good point. There are so many pros and cons to telehealth. And like you said, making the assumption that everyone has this equal access is unfair. And for you, what do you feel like are the unique challenges that senior citizens experience when trying to to gain the best access to care and communications between them and their providers? What I have seen with my friends here is number one, Everyone, healthcare providers and everyone else assumes that because you are a senior, that they can make appointments wherever and whenever because you have nothing else to do. That that is that is one that just sends chills up my spine every time. And that's why I carry a calendar. Tell me what date you're looking at and I will tell you what date you will schedule it. Then the other thing is a lot of the seniors are shuffled around to different places for rehab when no one asked them if they have transportation or how they can get there. And if they're using some other of the, you know, public transportation, then they're waiting for hours for it to show up. Sometimes it shows up on time. Sometimes it doesn't. Many of them are asked to be downstairs at 8.30 in the morning when most of us are just moving around at 8.30 in the morning. And so I don't think they actually assume that we have an opinion at this time uh, in our lives, that 
whatever they give us, that we will be happy to do it because we want to live just one more day. And that's not the way most of the of the residents here feel. I love that you said that. Seniors do have an opinion and it's a valid opinion. Respecting the opinions, the schedule, the needs and the preferences of senior citizens is so important. And that's a, a key part in communications, how to meet the needs of, of the people that you're serving. And not all old people are alike. We don't all have the same desires. Not everybody plays bingo, you know. <laughs> Come on. Not everybody wants a card game. Not everybody is has all day to just sit and wait for someone to pick them up and take them grocery shopping. You know, if... If a home care aide is due to come in and help you shower and get dressed in the morning, that doesn't mean 10 o'clock, but folks will just show up at your door and knock at your door and say, you know, it's time for rehab. No, no, no. I'm watching my story at two o'clock today. It's not time for rehab. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's very interesting how, how seniors, their time and their desires are not always respected. I think that's a huge place for change, you know, a huge place for opportunities for providers and, and people in the system to step up and be more mindful and intentional about that. What are some suggestions for bettering that communication and, and being able to share hard information, specifically with seniors? Ashley, let's go back to communications. <laughs> At some point, actually bring the family members in and have a conversation. What? Don't text them. Don't put it in an email. Don't stand up talking to them around the patient. Have them in a conference room and sit down and say, this is what we see. And this is what we think needs to happen. What do you need to make this happen? We will give you two days, three days, four days, whatever. But this is what needs to happen. It's back to communications. It's back to conversation. You can't do it over the phone. You can't do it in a text. You can't do it over the computer. Mm -hmm. So you feel like nothing beats that face-to-face -face communication. That's right. Because when I see you and we're face-to-face, if nothing else, I can read your lips, you know? <laughs> and if I don't understand, I can come back with another question. If I'm overwhelmed, you can see that I'm upset. There is something about face-to-face -face communication where you can read someone's body language. Mm -hmm. You can't replace that. And I know that COVID has had an impact on how we are able to access face-to-face -face communications and, and care. But I think we're, we're in a little bit of a safer place now, you know, to be able to, to get back to that in-person care. Are there any other tips or comments that you wanted to share that we didn't get to? The only thing I can say is we need to remember that we are all human and that none of us are going to leave this earth alive. It's just not gonna happen. And in that, remember that at some point, 
we could very well walk in that person's shoes. And if COVID hasn't done anything else, we know for a fact that you may have COVID today, but I could have it tomorrow. Your friend could die today and all of a sudden find out that you have it and you could die tomorrow. Always remember that just because you see it in someone else does not mean that it could not at some point be you. And do you think that that would lead to a more compassionate world where people slowed down and were more intentional about communications? I would hope so. I would hope so. I'm not sure it will happen in my lifetime, but I would hope that some of the things that technology has taken away from community and from and actually loving your neighbor, that at some point we will now come back to knowing that we are here to do more than just take up space and air and sight. We are to be our brother's keeper. I'm Ashley Freeman, and thanks for listening to this episode of Advocates in Action. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. We enjoy connecting with our listeners, so please visit our website at npaf.org podcast for show notes, resources, and ways to engage with us on social media. Thanks for listening. 